0: Life is a constant battle for control. And if anybody loves control, it's this guy. I love it. Have you ever ever been stranded in a foreign country? Uh, Any illusion of control that I thought I possessed going into that trip uh, quickly evaporated in a matter of moments. Now, I'm a planner, okay, that's part of the whole loving control thing. I, and we had this trip planned out as best as we possibly could. I mean, it was, it was our first full week away from the kids ever Mexico. And everything about it was perfect. It was beautiful, wonderful. All of our planning was not for nothing, except for the one thing outside of my control I hate you, Spirit Airlines. Oh, I hate you. I, you. You have no idea. I mean, we showed up for our return flight plenty early. I mean, that's just kind of how we roll, okay? And so we were there with lots of time, and, and you know, we, we finally find the, the check-in gate, and it should have been a clue for us when there was nobody there on either side of the counter. In fact, it was the middle of the day on a Friday, and their lights were off. But, you know, at that point, we're just thinking we're just in the wrong spot, right? We got to keep looking. So we start asking around, but we don't, we don't speak Spanish. And so, you know, that, that's kind of a lonely feeling, right? In a sea of people. And finally, we find somebody who speaks a little bit of English. And, and she says to us, you know, I'm pretty sure that Spirit Airlines has had their last flight of the day. And I took out our paperwork and I said, I'm pretty sure that they haven't. And so shrugging her shoulders, she sent us off in the direction of their offices. And so we finally, you know, time is is ticking down, but we got there plenty of time. So we finally find their, their offices locked. I am banging on that door and nothing happens. I mean, now I'm just a little bit starting to freak out, right? Imagine and so from there, we, we go and we find the nearest payphone, and you know, we try to call their 800 number, but we can't get through. And so I take out my cell phone to make what I know is going to be the most expensive phone call of my entire life, and, and meanwhile... You know, I'm trying to like kind of be the strong one, right? The tough one. I'm, it's it's going to be okay. It's fine. I can, I can begin to see the worry in Kelly's eyes. And I mean, here we are. We've been, been away from our kids seven days. She wants to get back to our babies. And, and so do I, honestly. And so I'm trying to be strong. But inwardly, I mean, truthfully, I felt like the walls were caving in. I mean, it was like starting to get a little bit tough to breathe. My loss of control was pushing me into a tailspin of fear and rage as I waited on the phone, listening to that soothing, patronizing music (laughs) for what seemed like forever, and finally, finally, I I got a a real person to to talk to, right? Finally, we're going to get just a little bit of help. I mean, even telling the story, I'm like, I could feel the, (laughs) starting to shake a little bit, just, oh, reliving this moment, and so finally a real person, okay? Okay, we're there, okay, it's going to be all right. And he kind of starts up, Mr. Miller, oh, yes, I, I, see what, I see what happened. We canceled your flight and put you on the one that left three hours ago. Have you missed your flight? No, I haven't missed my flight. My flight leaves in an hour. I don't miss flights, right? It's control. This doesn't happen. Well, well, Mr. Miller, we can get you on our next available flight. He's like, Okay. Okay, all right, fine. It's noon on Friday. How bad can this possibly be, right? Well, well Mr. Miller, it looks like our next flight is Sunday morning. I'm sorry, what? It sound, I mean, it sounded like you said Sunday, but I, I know that can't possibly be true. And they refused to put us on another airline, and they refused to put us in a hotel. And then... And then he said four little words that I will never forget. I mean, four words that still bring out within me the deepest sense of rage. Sorry for the inconvenience. I could have killed him, right? I mean, at that, inconvenience. I mean, when your flight is delayed an hour or two, that's an inconvenience. But being stranded in Mexico for two days, are you kidding me? I mean, be glad you didn't hear the last part of that conversation, okay? It wasn't pretty. Kelly is still trying to block out some of those memories. It was, it was intense. We'll just say that. And really, I mean, this story, right, it's, it's ridiculous. And honestly, looking back, it's not that big of a deal. The moment I got off the phone, all I did was walk over to another ticket counter, pull out a piece of plastic from my wallet, and regain control. That's it, Right? <laughs> I mean, $600 and two empty seats on a real airline. I mean, I hate you, you know, Spirit Airlines. But that's, that's all it took. And yet, for that one hour, I felt absolutely powerless. I mean, I, I could feel the control slipping out of my fingers, and instead, it was being exchanged with this feeling of, of rage and fear. I mean, I, I want to be in charge. I, I love control, right? I don't, I don't want to be at the mercy of anybody else. I don't want to have anyone else calling the shots in my life. I want to be the one making my decisions, my plans, my life happen like I think it should. And when that's taken from me, fear and rage. Life is a constant battle for control, when it comes to our plans, right? Our, our desires, our freedoms, anything that we want so desperately. The very idea of willingly placing those things into the hands of another seems absolutely ludicrous, doesn't it? I mean, I, I see it with my kids. I see it between Kelly and me. Uh, we see it in our workplaces in neighborhoods and politics. Life is a constant battle for control. Who's going to win that battle? And here we are on on Easter morning, right? And if Easter means anything at all, it's that Jesus says, now we give it all to him. That, That we let him start calling all of the shots in our lives. And Easter isn't just about cute bunnies and colorful eggs and a nice brunch after church. Easter is the day in which Jesus said, Everything is mine. You belong to me. What else could resurrection mean, right? And yeah, for many of us, this story is so familiar. We heard it read just a moment ago from from Matthew 28. And yet, as we look at these words, and especially at the, the last words, the final words of Jesus, we've got to wrestle with three questions. What does Jesus claim what gives him the right? And what are my options? In the battle for control, who's going to win? Well, first, what does Jesus claim? This comes out at the, the end of, of Matthew 28. Again, we heard the, the story read uh, a moment ago, but listen again now. This, this, we're gonna pick up the story after Jesus has, has risen from the dead. The disciples, they have seen it. And now these are really Jesus's final words to his disciples. It's how, it's how Matthew ends his gospel. He says to them, Matthew 28, beginning in verse 16, he says now, it says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted, right? And Jesus came and said to them, listen to what he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I mean, just let that phrase sink in for a moment. All authority. Jesus claims to possess all the authority of the entire universe. Now in his hands. I mean, you can't say that Jesus was was just a good teacher or just a good person. Anybody who makes the kind of claims that Jesus made, he's either insanely delusional, wickedly deceitful, or maybe just actually the one who possesses all authority. And those are really the only options, right? To make those kinds of claims, all authority. And what what must it have been like for those first people hearing those words out of Jesus' mouth? Don't you wonder that? I mean, sure, their their world was was different than ours, of of course, and yet, I can't help but wonder. I mean, they they probably liked personal control and autonomy just as much as the next guy, and now Jesus says to them, you belong to me. All authority. You see, we we were created to have dominion in our world, which means some measure of control. But our dominion was always meant to be under God's dominion. But Adam and Eve in the garden, right? If, you, if you're familiar with the story, they essentially, they trade God's authority for their own. They rebel against him, and they break us and our world as a result. And now all of Adam's children, which is us, Right? we continue that same fight. Life is a constant battle for control. Ultimately, it is a battle against our creator. And you may, not, you may not view yourself as an insurgent, but that's what it means to reject our maker. We don't seek him. We don't obey him. We don't honor him. Honestly, I mean, if you're really honest, most of us, most of the time, want very little to do with him. We do what we want because we love our illusion of control. We staged a coup against God himself and we hold his authority hostage in our own lives. And now, Jesus comes and he claims it all back. What gives him the right? All authority? Who does this, who does this guy think he is? And we're we're certainly not the first people on planet Earth to to question these words, right? And and again, picture those 11 disciples there, standing on some mountain in Galilee, listening to Jesus say these words. What would have gone through their minds? I I wonder if some of them thought back on, on all the promises that God had made hundreds of years earlier in the Old Testament. Uh, right now, as a, as a church family, uh, we are going through this entire book this year. Uh, we started in Genesis, and we are going to make it all the way to, to Revelation by the end of this year. Really trying to figure out what is, what is the story of this book? What is this book all about? In fact, if you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join. We're still at the beginning of the story. We'd love to have you with us. But all throughout this, this book, I mean, this one story of a God who rescues, and even in the Old Testament, place after place, we've seen some of them already, we see God promising a redeemer who would come hundreds of years before Jesus came, way back then. One of those promises that's, that's coming soon in our, our reading, if you're reading along with us, is, is in 2 Samuel. It's, it's a promise that God makes to king david it's a promise of authority of control it's a promise that only only the resurrected jesus could fulfill god himself makes this promise to king david king david is kind of the most famous of the old testament kings and here's what god says to him he says to david when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers i will raise up your offspring after you And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I mean, essentially what God is saying there is, is David, one of your sons will be king and he will be king forever. He says that there will be a throne, a seat of authority that would exist into eternity. And and Matthew now, right, our gospel writer, the one telling this story for us, Matthew knows all this. He knows these promises, and so he begins and ends his gospel with this picture of kingly authority. I mean, we saw how he ends, right? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. But how does he begin his gospel? I mean, right away in in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, here's how how this story begins. Matthew says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then he lists out Jesus' entire family tree, demonstrating that this Jesus is one of David's great-great-great-great-great-great-grandsons, that, that he is the one with the everlasting throne, that, that only he has the authority to say all authority. Are you, are you following this? The disciples there, they must have wondered, could this be the king that God promised to David? Could he be the one that we've been waiting for? I mean, Jesus may wear a crown of thorns. But Jesus can't be Jesus unless he's king. It's part of who he is. I'm sure some of those disciples thought back on these ancient promises. Others of them, though, I don't think would have needed to think that back that far at all, right? Uh, others of them, I'm sure, would have just thought, you know what? This guy was dead a few weeks ago, and now he's alive. All authority, all authority. Okay, fine, right? I mean, just, just imagine being in that situation. And, and I know for us, right, it, it almost seems preposterous, doesn't it? We remove ourselves from the situation. We, we think, wow, what, what would that have been like? I mean, put yourself in that story. A, a good friend of yours, you watched him die. And three days later, you're having lunch. I mean, you'd either check yourself into a mental hospital or you'd give him a little bit more respect than he did before, right? You'd think, this guy might have something figured out. And again, I, I realize that for, for some of us, the idea of a dead person alive now is completely unthinkable. I mean, you, you don't believe, right? Some of you, right? Don't believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. You're, you're here, you know, it's kind of a necessary stop on the way to lunch, right? To, to make your family happy. I, I get that. But just, just imagine for a moment, what if... What if, theoretically, hypothetically speaking, if some person actually did rise from the dead? I mean, is there anybody else worth following at that point? If you think about it? I mean, there's no greater resume than the one that says, I fought death and won. Only a king who has conquered death can possibly rule your life. Death is the enemy, right? Isn't it? I mean, death is, is, is the enemy because it is a result of our rebellion and sin. It is the final step, right? It is the ultimate consequence that we as humans received in the garden for our rebellion against God. And death always wins, doesn't it? I mean, death exists because we try to be our own authority. Life is a constant battle for control and all we've ever done is lose that battle. Every one of us who's ever lived. So, if there is actually someone who defeated death, I mean, I want to be on that guy's side, honestly. Just think about that. So, Jesus, he claims to have all the authority, and his resurrection gives him the right to make that claim. So, So what are my options? Well, I think there are three given to us in in Matthew twenty-eight, the story that we've been reading, the three that we we at least see on display. First, the first option here, when when we hear a story like this, and really this is the inevitable option. Okay, Uh, this one is reasonable doubt. Okay, a dead person alive. We're going to doubt that, aren't we? Of course we are. Every one of us. I mean, you'd be insane not to, think, to hear a story like this and not think, really? Did that actually happen? And sometimes we look back on, on those who lived in the first century, right? These, these early disciples, and we think, well, yeah, but they just believed stuff like that back then. I mean, they were just idiots, right? They were, just, they were uneducated. They had no idea. Superstitious. And so of course, they had no... They were, nobody was expecting this. Nobody I mean, you can look at all the things that the Jewish people believed going to that. None of them expected one person to ever rise from the dead. They expected a group sometime maybe down the road, kind of an end of days sort of thing, but never one person. They had no category for anyone coming back from the dead. Dead people stay dead. That's a good rule of thumb, isn't it? I mean, throughout all of history. And now here, there's Jesus. Of course some doubted. In fact, all the gospel writers talk about it, every one of them. There are four gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The gospels are the, are the books in our New Testament that describe the, the story of Jesus' life. All four of them talk about this struggle. I mean, in, in Mark, uh, the, the resurrection story really concludes with the, the first witnesses. It says they are astonished, afraid, and silent. In the, the gospel of Luke, the disciples, when they first hear the story from the women, they, they call it nonsense. There's no way. In John, one of the disciples actually earns the nickname Doubting Thomas. And now in Matthew, there in verse 17, it says, and some doubted. Of course they doubted. And if they doubted, I mean, those who actually knew Jesus, of course we're going to struggle. We stand in a long line of doubters. Believe me, I struggle. We all do. And kids, students, I mean, some of you, uh, when you first encounter these doubts, you know, as you get a little bit older, begin to think about your faith. I mean, I just remember for me, it was a scary thing in my life. Um, because I, I thought that something was wrong with me. Uh, I'm going I'm to tell you what I wish a grown up had told me doubt is normal. Doubt is simply a normal part of faith. In some ways, it's just inevitable. And doubt isn't necessarily a bad thing either. Tim Keller writes He says, A faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. Listen to your doubts, learn from them, don't be afraid of them. According to, to Frederick Buechner, doubt are ants in the pants of faith. I love that. They keep it alive and moving. They keep us awake. Doubt is normal, and most of us will struggle with doubt most of our lives. But doubt isn't a destination. It's a pathway. It's a pathway to, to one of two one or two of these one of two of these other options. There's two places that doubt can take us, either towards willful belief or willful disbelief. I mean, both of them, belief and disbelief, both are choice of the will in in so many ways, and both of them, to to many extents, comes comes down to this battle for control and who we want to be in control in our lives. So let's, let's talk for a moment about these. Willful disbelief. Willful disbelief. Now, we, we see this on display in some of the characters earlier on in the story. Uh, it was read for us. We haven't looked at it yet here. But earlier on, uh, we have these, these guards and these chief priests. You remember them Maybe in the reading there? Um, the guards witnessed the earthquake that accompanied Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and they saw the angel that appeared there to the, the first disciples, to the women there. But the chief priests desperate to maintain their own power, their control, that they come to these guards, these soldiers, and it says in Matthew, it says they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people. His disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And the soldiers, motivated by self-preservation or by greed, they spread that story among the people. They chose not to believe. Why? Why? Because they wanted something more than they wanted a resurrected Jesus. They wanted something, anything, money, power, control, whatever. They wanted something more than they wanted a resurrected Jesus. They wanted control, and they knew, as we all know, right? If somebody actually did rise from the dead, it changes everything. It has to change everything. Nothing can can be left the same. And so we, as, as thoughtful people, we have to ask ourselves... What motivates our disbelief? What motivates it? Now, I, I realize for, for some of you, if you, if you don't believe, you, you have your reasons, okay? And I, and I respect your disbelief. I hope you hear that. I, I really do. I respect that. But oftentimes, one of the most common reasons that we choose disbelief is simply because belief would cost us too much. to to make the choice to actually say, yes, Jesus is this person, it's a a costly choice, isn't it? The resurrection, I mean, it might be true, right? I mean, right? Theoretically, it's possible. Uh, But if it is, that means your life has to change, doesn't it? And if you're honest, you'd rather keep battling for control than surrender to the one who rose from the dead. I mean, ask yourself, be honest with yourself. Would you even want to believe this story? Would you even want to? Having beliefs means living by them. Having beliefs means living by them. Unless, of course, you're this guy. Let's watch. I have a lot of beliefs, and I live by none of them. That's just the way I am. They're just my beliefs. I just like believing them. I like that part. They're my little believies. They make me feel good about who I am. But if they get in the way of a thing I want... If they get in the way of a thing I want... What do you think he's going to say? Or really, how honest do you think he's going to be? If they get in the way of a thing I want, I just do whatever I want. It's just a little bit too honest for us, isn't it? I mean, I think we can all probably identify with that pretty deeply. I have my beliefs. I like my little believies. If they get in the way of a thing I want, I just do whatever I want. And so for, for many of us, when we, when we come to that, that battle of what I want and what my beliefs cause me, to, the direction they cause me to go, for many of us, it's just easier not to believe, isn't it? It's easier just to reject it all completely. Karl Marx famously called religion the opiate of the masses. Nobel laureate Shesla Maloch disagrees. He says a true opium of the people is the belief of nothingness after death. A huge solace for thinking that we are not going to be judged for our betrayals, greed, cowardice, murders, etc. The, the secularist has as much motivation to disbelieve in God as we, as followers of Jesus, have to believe in him. We don't want to be ruled. We don't want to be governed. We we certainly don't want to be held accountable to an all-knowing, perfectly righteous God who will judge. We want control. And according to Pascal, it's one of my favorite quotes from this 17th century philosopher. He says, In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadow to blind those who don't. The priests were motivated by power. The soldiers were motivated by greed or more likely self-preservation. What motivates your disbelief? What motivates you to reject his authority? I mean, we can reject Jesus, but, but at least know what's behind that rejection in your life. What's motivating you? Of course, the other option, the last option, is we can choose belief. That's really where where Matthew goes at the end of this story. That's what many of the disciples here do. Yes, some doubt it. We talked about that. But some, he says, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him. They found something better than control. Someone who died to free them from the selfish tyranny. I mean, in so many ways, our fight for control is a self-imposed enslavement, isn't it? I mean, that's how I felt in that airport. I felt imprisoned by my own need to to control my surroundings and be the master of my situation and be able to, to do what I want and to get my way. And I was enslaved. And the fear and rage came with it. But Jesus died to free us from our slavery. And he rose again to offer us life and the reality is I know, when I look deep within, I know that I'm lousy at running my own life. I'm lousy at it. Why not give somebody else a shot for a while? And as I as I look back at my life, and I've I've talked about this before, I mean, if I look back at, at when I was younger, let's say when I was a child, I thought at that moment that I had everything I needed to be able to make my own decisions. What well, kid doesn't, right? I knew how the world works. I knew what I needed most. I knew what could make me happy. But my life consisted of, of candy and Legos. That was, that was it, right? I, I, looking back, I wouldn't have that guy calling the shots in my life for anything. I don't want him in charge. And then, you know, maybe skip ahead a, a, a few years. And I look back at when I was a young adult, my early 20s, and man, I thought I had it all figured out. Right? Who didn't? I I, I thought I knew everything, and I knew exactly what would make me happy, and I had exactly the right path to get there, and I made plenty of mistakes. But I thought I should be calling the shots. I look back at that guy, that version of myself. There's no way I'd put him in charge today. There's no way. It'd be crazy. But now here I am. (laughs) Huh? Huh? That's right. 33, two kids, married almost 11 years, pastor for almost a I have got it together. I finally arrived. And I know most times I'm convinced I know exactly what I need, what I want, and I know the p- best path to get me there. But I also know there's a good chance because I've looked back enough on various areas of my life. There's a good chance when I get a few years down the road, I mean let's be honest, I'm going to look back at the 30-year th- 33-year-old version of myself and think that guy was an idiot. There's no way. I know that's going to happen, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna, I wouldn't put that guy in charge. And so why do I keep fighting for control every stage of the way along my life? I, I long for control, and yet I know that I am lousy at it. Life is a constant battle for control. Maybe it's just time to surrender. Ask yourself. I mean, whether you consider yourself a skeptic or a longtime believer, what would it look like for you to give up control? What would it look like? What, what areas in, in your life would change? What, what would you have to do differently? What would you have to give up? I mean, what would change in some of those things that we as humans tend to love the most with money or sex or power or with, with work or our free time? What would have to change? What would you have to give up? But think about what you gain in return. Chance to breathe. Two weeks ago, I got an email from a man in our, our congregation, um, mid-30s. He told me I could, I could share all this. Um, but he was, he's, he's the guy, I mean, I knew who he was going into it, but he was, we pastors, we sit up here, we can kind of we we read people a little bit. I can see all of you. I know who's sleeping, right? Uh, I know who's sort of like, kind of, you know, looking at me like this a little bit. Um, this was one of those individuals that I, I knew he was, he would just sort of show up when his wife talked him into it, honestly, Right? Some of you totally relate to that, right? I know that. It's okay. It's okay. We're glad you're here anyway. Um, but that—that that was this guy, and so he emailed me completely out of the blue. I was kind of curious. Here, here's how he started the email. He says, "I was raised in a family. This was again. This was like two weeks ago. I was raised in a family that was not religious." In fact, I would say they are against all religion. I was taught that believers are weak and that the church was money hungry. For a long time, I considered myself an atheist. I lived like that until I met my wife 10 years ago. She introduced me to Christianity, but I didn't like it. Didn't have time for it, didn't have a purpose for it, etc. Basically, I was stubborn and refused to open my eyes. A little willful disbelief, maybe. And then he goes on in the email, he mentions some of the personal struggles that that he's experienced, marriage challenges, uh, various sins, really things in his life that he has struggled to find control over his entire existence. He he describes it, he says, I kind of view it like I built a castle around me, so big nobody could get in. Well, it all came to a head for him on March 14th, uh, this year, just a couple weeks ago. When, for the, the first time, completely unexpectedly, not looking for it in the least, he encountered Jesus. And he believed. And he writes, he says, I felt my castle crumble and heart opened. All of a sudden, I could see how wrong my way of life was. I also saw that I cannot hold the weight of the world on my shoulders like I thought I could. I truly believe Jesus came to me even though I wasn't looking for him. And he concludes with this. He says, I finally feel relief about everything in life. I don't feel like I need to control the world and I can breathe. You can only give up control if you believe that there's something better than control out there. Jesus claims to have all the authority and he rose from the dead to prove it following him is better. I mean, many teachers will tell us how to live, right? All teachers, in some ways, they tell us how to live. And and you can can hear that from from Buddha or from Dawkins or Oprah or Muhammad. All teachers tell us how to live, but only one actually gave his life for ours. He died to free us from the tyranny of our own selfishness, our own self-preservation, our own illusion of control. It's just an illusion. We know it is. We cling to it so desperately. He died to free us from that. And He rose again to give us the life that we long for. And in Jesus, rather than suffocating in our constant fight for control, we can breathe. Life is a constant battle for control. Who's going to win that battle in your life?